What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. On this week's Science Revolution, we have Zach Corrigan with Food and Water Watch. Could another zoonotic pandemic be coming? Thomas Lindsay with the Center for Democratic and Environmental Rights is here on the rights of nature and how those rights may have protected Pennsylvania from industry harm. Friends of the Earth, Lucas Ross is dropping by on the big oil bailout and how fracking may be next. The Washington League for Increased Transparency and Ethics is suing Fox so-called news for endangering Americans and calling the coronavirus a hoax. Can he win? Check it out. Tom Harvin here with you. Local communities are standing up, and in some cases standing up for the rights of nature. An extraordinary process, an extraordinary event. Thomas Lindsay, the Senior Counsel for the Center for Democratic and Environmental Rights, CDER, CenterForEnvironmentalRights.org and C-D-E-R underscore org is the Twitter handle, is with us. Thomas, welcome back to the program. Yeah, thanks for having us, Tom. So tell me about this story here with this Pennsylvania victory. Yeah, so it goes back a while, back to 2014. Folks may not know, but the fracking explosion in the United States, this hydrofracking for natural gas that's occurred in the country, produced about 189 billion gallons of fracking wastewater in the United States. And that's equivalent to 14 and a half days of Niagara Falls basically falling into the earth. And so fracking companies have been taking this carcinogenic, heavy metal-laden, radioactive fracking waste and dumping it into the ground. So that's produced about 36,000 oil and gas wastewater injection wells across the United States with one of those planned for this very small community of 700 people in a place called Grant Township in western Pennsylvania. And starting in 2014, the folks in Grant Township, not wanting to be used as a toilet for this kind of fracking waste, decided to adopt a local law with our help to ban wastewater from being injected into the township. And when they pass the law, of course, as happens often with communities that pass these kinds of bans in the face of a state or federal permit that's been issued for these kinds of operations, they were sued by a company called Pennsylvania General Energy. And eventually their local law was overturned by a federal judge who also cited the township for payment of monies for violating the corporation's constitutional rights by refusing to allow the frac wastewater injection well from coming in, and also fined uh, the two lawyers that were representing Grant, and I was one of them, $52,000 for daring to raise the legal argument that the locality should have the power to say no to this kind of harmful activity or project coming into the municipality. 
And so it's been a long saga in Grant Township, but it didn't stop with the federal court's order overturning their local law. They adopted what's known as a home rule charter, which is in essence a local constitution for their community, and reinstated the ban that the federal judge had overturned. So pretty much an open defiance of the federal court decided to draft a local constitution that had this ban language in it that the federal judge had overturned. And I think to everybody's amazement, in some ways, in mid-March, the state agency, the Department of Environmental Protection, which had originally issued the state permit to the facility to go into Grant Township, reversed itself and decided to revoke the permit on the basis of the locality's adoption of that ban within their home rule charter in the municipality. Was that a political decision or a legal one? Well, the fact is we don't know, but in the letter that was sent out from the state agency, it specifically referenced the locality's ban and said that under Pennsylvania law, under the regulations they were operating under, that they were forbidden by law from issuing a permit that would violate other law. And for the last 40 years, the DEP has not, these state agencies really haven't seen local laws as having viable bans. So when they talk about issuing permits that would violate law, they've pretty much been talking just about state law. But this was a legal interpretation that the locality's ordinance, the locality's home rule charter that bans injection wells, actually was binding on the state agency, that they were acquiescing to that provision. And so in that respect, it's a pretty big deal. It's only happened once or twice before, but in this context, it was a state agency basically recognizing that a locality has the right to ban these types of harmful activities from coming in. Right, but this was the state agency recognizing that rather than a court. So the state agency could have just said, you know, these people are going to fight us no matter what we do. They're a pain in the butt. Let's find another town that is not so activist, you know, a town filled with people who watch Fox News, and we'll just inject the poison under their houses instead of these people's houses. Yes, absolutely, which is what the companies have been doing up until now, which is shipping the waste to Ohio. So this is the first set of wastewater injection wells that were scheduled for Pennsylvania. But in reality, what it does is it takes the state agency off the side of the corporation and basically forces the corporation to now not be in a position where they can use the state agency to force the project in. So I think it's the beginning of a turn. Yeah, beginning of a turn towards legal recognition of these kinds of local rights. And I have to say that we've worked over the past couple of weeks on the COVID-19 novel coronavirus stuff that's happening in different places. And while a lot of our work is focused on environmental issues, this legal doctrine of localities being able to override the state when they provide for expanded protections for human health and the natural environment I think you see the same situation arising in places like Tupelo and Jackson in Mississippi, where the Mississippi governor has overridden cities in Mississippi from doing shelter-in-place orders. And so I think this doctrine that we've developed, which was the law of the land back in the 1800s, but somehow has been forgotten, the argument is that localities, municipalities can't be preempted, overridden by the state, if they seek to provide expanded or heightened public health and environmental protections for people and nature within their municipality. So it's an exciting kind of uh, new 
movement built around this local control concept in which cities are kind of in the lead and municipalities are in the lead, whereas the state is overridden in these cases under this legal doctrine. I think the last time we talked, Thomas, was, at least here on the air, was around the time that Lake Erie was being recognized as having rights, the rights of nature. Where is that at, and how is this movement spreading across the United States? So the Lake Erie Bill of Rights was the subject of a lawsuit brought 24 hours after the people of Toledo overwhelmingly passed it. And unfortunately, a federal court overturned the Lake Erie Bill of Rights folks are still deciding whether to appeal the decision or how to move. But the Lake Erie Bill of Rights stuff has led to other efforts like those in Florida, where a dozen counties, including the 30th largest county in the United States, Orange County, fifth largest in Florida, has now voted to place a Rights of Nature initiative onto the countywide ballot in November. And so I think the worthiness of places like the Lake Erie Bill of Rights in Toledo is that it has birthed, in some ways, a new acceleration of rights of nature laws in places like Florida, where you have this fairly massive movement now moving to deal with and recognize rights of nature for rivers, bays, and estuaries. Yeah. Has this been through federal courts yet? No. The Florida stuff is on the verge of challenging some preemptive authority by the state. It's fascinating to watch as the corporations use state legislators to try to preempt these measures from moving forward. I think in some ways that is the thing that shows them as the most effective and that they're a real threat. The Florida House and Senate about a month ago passed bills to specifically preempt rights of nature laws from being adopted in Florida. So we'll see what happens next. Yeah. Well, keep us up to date on it. It's great talking with you. Thomas Lindsay, he's the senior counsel of the Center for Democratic Environmental Rights, C-D-E-R, Center for F-O-R, environmentalrights.org is the website, C-D-E-R underscore org. Thank you, Thomas. Thanks, Tom. Zach Corrigan is on the line with us. Zach is the senior attorney with Food and Water Watch. Food and A-N-D, waterwatch.org is the website, of course. And you can tweet him at Corrigan Zach or Food and Water. Uh, Zach, welcome back to the program, or welcome to the program. Uh, Thanks, Tom. Thanks for joining us. I wanted to talk about diseases that jump from animals to humans, given that the coronavirus that is ravaging the world right now killed over 13,000 Americans so far because of Donald Trump's failure to do anything in the first two or three months. Apparently started with bats and maybe pangolins, these little anteater kind of animals in China. And, you know, we've seen other of these diseases And also, uh, help me with my pronunciation. This is one of those words that I don't think I've ever heard. I've always just read. I always pronounced it in my head, zoonotic. But somebody called yesterday and said it's zoonotic. Tell me about these diseases. I'm not sure if I can help the pronunciation debate. I think it might be tomato, tomato. But I can tell you a little bit about zoonotic diseases. That's how I pronounce it. I think that most Americans before this COVID-19 outbreak would have never heard of zoonotic diseases or would not be concerned about them. But in reality, quite simply, they're just diseases that pass between humans and animals. And it's pretty shocking, I think, for most folks to find out that, according to the CDC, six out of 10 known infectious diseases can be spread from animals 
and 75% of new or emerging infectious diseases in people come from animals. Tens of thousands of Americans get sick every year from zoonotic diseases. So they're a really serious problem. Obviously, the current pandemic sheds a, a whole new light on this, but people should be concerned about zoonotic conditions and zoonotic diseases um, all of the time, not just during times like this. Now, do those numbers you just quoted include things like E. coli and listeria infections that are specific to the GI tract, or are those all more systemic diseases like tuberculosis and I believe gonorrhea also started out in animals? Or maybe it was yeah, syphilis. It would, it would include both. And we're concerned about those sorts of diseases that you get foodborne. You know, I think people oftentimes make light of problems like foodborne illnesses, saying they have a stomach bug. But it, it can be quite serious. It can put people out of work for days at a time and can result in hospitalization and death. And that's from things like salmonella or E. coli. But it also includes more serious, like influenza. And a lot of people are now finding out about the 1918 influenza outbreak. But few people actually know that during that outbreak, there was an outbreak with swine as well. Um, Well, that outbreak began in Kansas with a pig farm, didn't it? I mean, didn't it come from pigs and go into humans in Kansas? That's right. And and vice versa. As late as 2009, there was an outbreak. People may remember the H1N1 virus. And that was quite sure where it originated, but it came from a mixture of swine, avian, and human lineages of the influenza virus that ended up killing 125 people in 69 countries. So uh, what do we do with this information, Zach? I mean, we've known for, uh, I I assume, centuries that some diseases come from animals and humans catch them and, and then they become transmissible person to person. Clearly, the so-called wet markets where wild animals are sold for food, and this is not unique to China or Southeast Asia. I've seen these markets in Africa as well as Asia. I've seen something close to them in South America. They seem to be more uh, markets of poverty, basically. People are, are resorting to eating, well, I mean, there's parts of America where they hunt possum and squirrel and, and uh, even, you know, some people will uh, even eat roadkill. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's, if it's a matter of survival, people will eat whatever's available to them. How does this inform us with regard to these things? First of all, with regard to wild animals, and then secondly, with regard to domesticated animals that we're using for food? Yeah, well, certainly. And I, I think that there is going to be a movement. We've already seen a movement in China to limit these wet markets and limit the contact between people and animals. But I I also think there needs to be a transition for folks to realize that this is not something that's just happening elsewhere. This is not just a China problem. This is a problem that happens with our domestic animals, too. And while we are concerned, and obviously so, about the current pandemic, we are currently, Food and Water Watch is working to fight against this administration's current rollbacks of protections that would prevent the spread of disease from animals to swine. For example? Under the new rules finalized just this year, it is now the employees of slaughter plants 
who are chiefly responsible for identifying diseases in animals prior to instead of federal inspectors. And this means mm. that under or untrained employees will be the gatekeepers ensuring that there aren't diseased animals entering the food supplies or just sent to a different farm or sent to a different slaughterhouse where the disease can be spread. And that's very troubling. About a decade ago, or maybe longer, there was a lot of concern about folded proteins, these, uh, you know, these proteins that cause mad cow disease, uh, jumping from cattle to humans, and that that may play a role in the explosion of dementia and what's, what's diagnosed as Alzheimer's in America. What's the status of all that? Research is still being done on how these prions work and how they affect human health. I think this is more research needs to be done but if there's anything that we have learned from this pandemic, it's that we should be working with extreme precaution. We should be trying to minimize humans' exposure to animals that are potentially diseased. And we shouldn't be limiting or relaxing such rules. And we shouldn't be laying off government inspectors and replacing them with corporations managing their own. This is just incredible stuff. This is a wrong time um, to allow pork companies to self-police their hog supply for diseases, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. If you want to see uh, what's the disease from from pork that uh, used to be so problematic, some of these resurgences. Zach Corrigan with Food and Water Watch, foodandwaterwatch.org is the website. Zach is the senior attorney there. Zach, thanks so much for dropping by today. Great talking to you. Thanks so much, Tom. My pleasure. Great having you with us. So what if somebody was to sue Fox News? You've got eight or nine red state governors who are still refusing to do shelter in place orders. They are going to get probably in May, their states are gonna melt down. And a lot of these states have basically no rural hospitals left because they didn't expand Medicaid. So literally hundreds of rural hospitals have gone out of business in the last decade because of that failure to expand Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act. I mean, it's just nuts. What if somebody was to sue Fox News and Rupert Murdoch and, and maybe even AT&T and Comcast for broadcasting lies that are costing people's lives? You think that would be a good idea? Well, it turns out somebody has. The Washington League for Increased Transparency and Ethics, also known as Washlight, W-A-S-H-L-I-T-E. The director of this organization, his name is Arthur West. Arthur is on the line with us. Arthur, welcome to the program. Good morning, Tom. So glad to have you with us. So you live up in Washington State, and you have filed a 10-page complaint against these guys. You're suing them. Tell me about the lawsuit. What is it? Where did it come from? What's your goal? Well, our organization's been around for three years. It was formed by a number of activists to pursue public interest litigation. This suit came pretty much out of discussions that we had about Fox's programming, and one of our members caught the virus, and we thought that uh, having this type of misinformation on the media was harming the response in the state, and that we would like to do something about it. And so we did some research. We looked up the Consumer Protection Act. And basically, this is a 
consumer product case, we believe Fox is mislabeling their content and that they willfully and maliciously published material that caused a clear and present danger of harm to society in general. How specifically are they mislabeling their content? You mean they're calling it news when in fact it's propaganda or political uh, propaganda or something like that? The Consumer Protection Act in our state, the core of its protections are the intent to deceive. And our claim is that Fox's product that it sells and places in the broad stream of commerce through its cable contracts has the capacity to deceive Washington consumers as to what's news, what's opinion, and more importantly, what's prudent to do in light of a global pandemic. Yeah, I guess in the context of a pandemic, you have some family history here. My friend Liz comes from Pennsylvania, our attorney. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure of exactly of the details, but in Pennsylvania, there were no conditions imposed, and a lot of people died, and I think this is during the flu epidemic of 1918. Yes. Or Liz's grandmother, I believe, was one of the only survivors of her entire class. So you guys have some familiarity with this. One of the things I noticed in the uh, news story that I read about this was that you believe that uh, the discovery process, you know, when you sue somebody or for that matter, when you're sued, there's this thing called discovery where both sides get to basically dig into the details of the other side's business activities and things like that. What do you expect to find in discovery? I'd like to point out that it wasn't just the statements of Mr. Hannity. There are a number of Fox News or news personalities who minimized the coronavirus. Charles Payne on March 6th, Mark Siegel, Jenny Pirro, and particularly Ainsley Earhart and Laura Ingram, who on March 13 encouraged people to fly. So... What we would hope to find in discovery and what we'd have to hope to show is that while Fox was broadcasting this information, they knew or should have known that this was actually a significant threat. Murdoch family did. They called off Rupert's 90th birthday or whatever it was, put the whole family into quarantine. And I think that was January. It might have been February, but that was pretty early on. And they also apparently have some internal memos where they urge the people at the network to take reasonable precautions. So Mm. my question or our question would be, if they knew that this was a threat and they were taking those precautions themselves, why were they broadcasting to the nation and internationally for people to do exactly the opposite? Right. You're filing this lawsuit under the Consumer Protection Act, basically, that Fox is selling and make no mistake about it. They're selling at a huge profit. It's a it's a you know, it's a billion dollar enterprise that throws off hundreds of millions, maybe billions of dollars in profit every year that Fox is selling a false product in, in essentially implying while well, they state that their content is entertainment, as do pretty much all the companies now. They imply that it's actually news, that it's real information that you can trust when, in fact, it's not. Uh, And I get that. But the real world consequence of this is that people are dying. I encounter these folks from time to time um, who who actually watch Fox News, believe what it has to say. And they're like, you guys are all hysterical. What's the big deal? You know, I'm going to go do what I want. You know, I mean, there's still people having parties and stuff. 
This is going to lead to death. Many of these people are going to die or they're going to be permanently damaged. We now discover that, according to the New York Times today, in addition to permanent lung damage, you may end up with permanent eye damage from this disease. It actually deforms the retina. I mean, this is serious stuff. Why not go after them for something like, you know, uh, involuntary manslaughter? Well, that's more in the nature of a criminal prosecution. And the ability of the courts to deal with media in the context of freedom of the press and the First Amendment is very limited. O.J. was sued in a criminal court for murdering his wife. That might be an appropriate reaction on the part of criminal prosecutors. That's not a, a private action that we could bring. But yes, if it were possible for us to bring an action for negligent couldn't, couldn't you find standing. somebody whose grandpa died because he was watching Fox News and went to the store? Yeah, the burden of proof in a criminal prosecution is higher as well. No, I'm talking yeah. about a civil prosecution where, like with O.J., you're, yeah. you're saying, you know, you denied my right to, to companionship or friendship or whatever, however that was phrased in the O.J. case where they finally um, convicted him. Yes, that's that's possible, and we would urge anyone who was damaged like that to speak to their attorney about it. We, though, thought that the Consumer Protection Act was the quickest, easiest... No, God bless you. I think it's wonderful, Arthur. Forgive my interrupting, but we're out of time here. Uh, Arthur West is the director of Washlight, the Washington League for Increased Transparency and Ethics. Sponsoring the interview this week is New Leaf Natural CBD Oil. Boy, with all this flying around, you know... I have been doubling my CBD oil dose. I love CBD oil. It doesn't get you high, it, but it, and it's non-toxic, but it's a potent pain reliever and anti, or it has potent pain relieving and anti-inflammatory properties. I think is the proper way to say that. And the brand I trust the most is New Leaf Naturals. NU Leaf Natural CBD oil is the highest quality CBD oil on the market. It's 100% organic, highly concentrated, has no additional additives, grown in the USA, and the only ingredient is hemp, so the product remains in its most pure and simple form. Go to newleafnaturals.com, that's NUleafnaturals.com, and save 30% off and get free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM, it's spelled T-H-O-M. Go to NUleafnaturals.com. For premium cannabinoid wellness, there's only one place, NUleafnaturals.com. That's NUleafnaturals.com. That's NUleafnaturals.com. Code TOM. It's spelled T-H-O-M. NUleafnaturals.com. On the line with us is Lucas Ross. He's a senior policy analyst with Friends of the Earth. FOE.org is their website. You can tweet him at Lucas Ross, L-U-K-A-S Ross, number one. Lucas, welcome to the program. It's great to be here, Tom. Thanks for joining us. So the big oil bailout, we just saw a giant bailout of the airline industry and the banking industry and the insurance industries and pretty much any other industry that's got you know, a good connection into the Trump administration. You've got a half a trillion dollars, $500 billion that's specifically earmarked to give away to these, you know, whoever Donald Trump wants to decide to give it to. And then on top of that, you know, there was a half a billion dollars in funding to backstop the Fed so that the Fed could loan out an additional $4 trillion. Has Friends of the Earth figured out if, how, or when the oil industry is going to get their grubby little hands into this? Yeah, I think it's pretty much clear that if there is anyone who's going to be lining up around the block to get some of this corporate slush fund money, it's going to be big oil. The thing you've got to understand is that this industry was not in very good financial health before the coronavirus. 
and it is now working very hard to exploit this crisis to get a lifeline for itself. So how exactly are they doing that? What are they doing? So I think what you've got to understand is that as a result of the stimulus, we're all entering an even stranger and more frightening world than before. Yes, direct aid is headed to individuals eventually, but Steve Mnuchin is now perhaps the most powerful man in Washington. He has really unprecedented discretion over how this $500 billion slush fund is spent. And one of the things that we're seeing is that any kind of guardrails that are associated with this money are actually like not very binding. He has the authority to waive most of the restrictions on limiting stock buybacks and just overall determining how this money is spent. There just aren't very many guardrails for workers or communities, and there are no guardrails at all for climate. And when you have the uh, fossil fuel industry, which was actually bleeding red ink long before any of this started, you kind of have a perfect storm. What's going to happen is that these companies like that have been heavily involved in fracking, they've been producing a lot of oil and gas, but they haven't really been producing a lot of money. The fundamentals are pretty weak to anyone who's bothered to look. And as a result of that, it seems very likely that these debt-strapped companies that are going to have trouble getting access to credit normally, who had cash flow problems before this, are just basically going to jump in and take advantage of this huge slush fund that's been made available to the general economy now. And because of their connections to the Trump administration, you can be pretty sure that they're going to be first online. Lucas, about a year ago, I had an oil analyst guy on this show or somebody who deals with oil analysts. And he suggested that the fracking industry, by and large, is following the same economic model that over the last decade, maybe two decades, has been played out in the coal mining industry. And that is basically what's been happening. I think we saw this with Massey. I could be wrong, but I believe that that was probably one of the poster child examples of this, is that they create a mine, whether it's an open pit or, you know, whatever. They destroy the environment. They create millions and millions of dollars of toxic legacy. They set up a disposable corporation to own all that. They borrow as much money against that corporation as they possibly can. They max out its line of credit and so that they can pay large amounts of money out of that debt to their stockholders and to their CEOs and senior executives. And then when the end of the mine, the exhaustion of the mine, or the reduction in demand is within sight, and they would have to, under the existing laws, start cleaning up the mine, at that point they bankrupt it and dump the liability on the people. And this guy suggested that fracking is really a fracked well, typically has a five to 15 year maximum lifespan, five year average, and that these companies are loading up on debt, mostly so that they can shift the money from that debt to their CEOs, and there's literally hundreds of these small private corporations fracking around the United States. And the reason there's so many of them, there's not been an effort to consolidate them all, is because all of them are running on this plan of we're going to frack, we're going to take all the gas or oil out we can and sell it, we're going to put that money in our pockets, and when it comes time to do remediation to fix the environmental damage as the well is winding down, we're simply going to declare bankruptcy and walk away. Is that what's going on here or a variation on that? Yeah, I think that the story of fracking is, in a lot of respects, a really American story. It's a scam. We have a little bit of financial magic here, making it look like something is a good investment. And at a certain point, 
the people on the ground floor are going to walk away and try to take as much money with them as possible. This is not really a new story here. And I think that what you're outlining right now is really, it really underlines the fact that one word that progressives can't afford to fear right now is nationalization. These companies are probably going to be trying to get a hold of as much money from us as possible right now. So one of the things that that means is that we actually need to draw a pretty sharp line about what the conditions for any fossil fuel company receiving aid should look like. And I think that needs to be a phase out of fossil fuel production and an ironclad Mm. commitment to resolving existing environmental liabilities and existing pension obligations. If they want any money, they cannot be allowed to walk away from the mess they've created. Right. Well, prior to Reagan, pension funds were sacred. They had to be booked as liabilities rather than assets. Reagan changed that so you could book them as assets, and then you could basically steal the pension funds when you bankrupt the companies, You know, which has been standard business practice since Carl Icahn pioneered it with TWA back in the 80s. But how do we do this given how institutionalized this business model is? The Fed, for example, about a week, week and a half ago, the Fed said, and it was, I read the Financial Times, I didn't read it anywhere else. The Fed said, we're going to start buying corporate bonds. Yep. Now, I'm assuming that they're buying fracking company bonds. These are bonds that if they were left in the marketplace would be blowing up right now. They'd be exploding in these companies. They'd be called, you know, there'd be all these calls on them and they'd be going out of business. But if the Fed buys the bonds, then you and I, you know, they're nationalizing basically the liability. We're paying for that and the exploding bonds are invisible. And that, according to the Financial Times article that I read, that's what has kicked the stock market back up and put a floor underneath it. In fact, the Fed has even said that they will start buying stocks if necessary, and they may already be doing this. So how do we do this? How do we put this in a place given these realities? So something that we need to accept is that while Democrats were negotiating the last stimulus, they were in a terrible situation. Mitch McConnell is a master hostage taker, and he exacted a terrible price. That said, they really need to do better next time. There is going to be additional legislation to address. There's going to be a, need to be additional legislation to address the coronavirus crisis. As that happens, we need to do much better at making Democrats use the leverage that they have in order to ensure that a runaway bailout for the fossil fuel industry doesn't happen under existing legislation. I got it. And I completely agree. Lucas Ross, senior policy analyst with Friends of the Earth. Hang on just a second. Tom Hartman program. That's F-O-E as in Friends of Earth, F-O-E dot org. Thanks for being with us. That's all for this week's Science Revolution. You can find the video portions of the Science Revolution on YouTube and check out our Facebook page.